0: Ustedes saben,
1: hemos firmado un acuerdo parcial. Uno de los puntos que llevamos en estos días de discusión es un punto que está contemplado en la agenda de el memorando de entendimiento.
2: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Latin Dialogues the podcast series in which the team at Latin Dialogue bring you up to date on the most important news stories from Latin America over the past few weeks. I'm Isabel, one of the editors at Latin Dialogue, and you just heard Jorge Rodriguez, head of Nicolás Maduro's delegation, giving a statement at negotiation talks in Mexico. These talks were an attempt to carry forward a dialogue between Nicolás Maduro's administration and the opposition headed by Juan Guaidó in order to resolve the country's long-standing political crisis. Rodriguez says that Nicolás Maduro's administration has signed a partial agreement with the opposition in line with the Memorandum of Understanding, and one of the main points being discussed is the protection of the Venezuelan economy and also the social protection of the Venezuelan people. We'll hear more about this in the second part of the podcast when I speak to our editor-in-chief, Sonia. But first, let's hear from our newest editor, Lucas Reynoso, an international relations graduate calling in from Argentina, And who we are very happy to have on board here at LATAM. Earlier this week Lucas interviewed Salvadorian multimedia journalist and news correspondent Luisa Moncada about the recent turn of events in El Salvador. The country has been making headlines partly due to the rollout of bitcoin as legal tender this week which we discussed in episode 3 of this podcast series but also because of a controversial ruling from the country's top courts allowing presidents to serve two consecutive terms Let's find out what this could mean for the Central American country and why exactly this decision has caused so much controversy.
1: Thank you very much, Isabel, for the presentation. As you say, I am pleased to be joined today by Luisa Moncada, a Salvadorian journalist that will help us understand the implications of the recent ruling by the Salvadorian Supreme Court, which I believe is a very important event for the region, because it will allow President Bukele to seek his re-election in 2024. And President Bukele is a particularly interesting and complex figure because he's a young, ambitious politician that when he came to power two years ago in June, 2019, he was a hope for change. He had promised an end to corruption and violence. And he seemed to be different from other politicians in the region, like Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, that as we discussed in episode four, has been accused of numerous human rights violations, but that since coming to power, Bukele has actually had numerous controversial turns towards authoritarianism. As we will see in this conversation with Luisa Moncada, it seems that the differences between Bukele and his predecessors or other caudicial politicians in the region are more about style and appearances than about substance and meaningful change. Hi, Luisa. Thank you very much for being with us here today at LATAM Dialogues.
0: Hi, Lucas. I'm happy to be here.
1: Let's jump straight in into our first question. Uh, could you? please give us a brief summary of the context of this ruling uh, and then explain us a bit of what do you think this ruling means for El Salvador.
0: The resolution opens the door to unlimited re-election, even though it's against the constitution, which totally says no to the presidential re-election in consecutive terms. The Constitution even speaks that those who promote the presidential re-election will lose their citizenship right, And this prohibition is within the stony clouds. I mean, it could never be changed. Let us remember that this resolution was made by the judges imposed by Bukele on May 1st in in direct violation of the proper selection process by the law, and that it joins other attacks on judicial independence. In addition to this, Bukele studies a project with more than 200 reforms to the Salvadorian constitution. The reforms say, for example, that the constitution can be changed without the approval of a second consecutive Congress, and instead, of this referendum, extends the presidential term, is in favor of the armed citizen groups. In short, they are no reform. Bukele now wants a new populist constitution.
1: And and what is the opposition uh, doing about this? Or what is uh, the civil society doing about this? Is there a reaction? or do you think the reaction is mostly from the international community?
0: Okay. Um, The political opposition in El Salvador is at the worst moment in history. Bukele has 56 of the 84 congressmen, and two more parties are with him. That's it. Almost 70 votes in the Congress are pro-Bukele. The opposition has three or five members by party. I mean, it's ridiculous, no? Bukele has no political opposition in the Congress. Mm -hmm. However, the civil society protests in the streets. It's the only real opposition now against democracy attacks, arbitrary arrests, the Bitcoin law, less transparency. I'm concerned about this situation. I believe that civil society will gain more strength and will be the only real opposition. But at some point, Bukele will use force to silence them. I don't see Bukele backing down in his decision. I see him empowering his regime. I'm Mm -hmm. concerned that we will see soon in El Salvador what happened what happened in Nicaragua in 2018.
1: And that's interesting because uh, for what I understand, uh, Bukele doesn't get along at all with uh, Ortega, right? They are very different and there seems to be a struggle for power in the Central American region, right? Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Actually, Bukele and Ortega has different styles, no? Mm -hmm. But in the front of democracy have the same act.
1: Hmm. But when we see Bukele as a young man that is quite popular in the sense that, as you were saying, he has most of the seats in Congress, um, even if you are clearly not in favor of him, how would you uh, explain the fact that he is so popular for so many Salvadorians? Why is it that so many people voted for him or still support him?
0: Yeah. To understand the Bukele effect, we must understand the Salvadorian people. El Salvador now has corruption cases against the last four four former presidents. I talk about 20 years ago, no? Mm -hmm. 12 years ago, the people voted for the FMLN, the Frente para el Frente para Bundo Martí para la Liberación Nacional. I mean in English. The only left win political party in the country. But the people were disappointed. Now the two left ex-presidents are in Nicaragua because they say that they are victims or uh, of a political persecution. I want to tell you that the people are tired and disappointed and the reality in El Salvador is that the 40% of the people, of the population live in poverty. 60% work informally. It It was easy, really easy to believe in a superhero, who will punish those guilty of his misfortune. That's what Najib Bukele does. He say all the time for the people, revenge and justice. He sends food to the door of their people house. He talks to them and if they have a voice now. He talks directly to the people, to them on Twitter. The people have the power, he say all the time. He have the same model that Ortega in Nicaragua has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Bitcoin law has opened people's eyes, you know. And now, in the latest polls, he's starting to go down. The sad thing in this history is that he already has the absolute control of the country. He is different because he has charisma and use the social network, no? Mm-hmm. But if you check the news, the opposition news, no? If you check the transparency in the country... If you check that the Bitcoin Lao, for example, has no the approval of the population and is Lao, no, you can see that Bukele has had a different form, but the same corruption that the
2: past.
1: And uh, Luisa, what about his policy regarding the fight against crime. I remember that during his election, he advocated for an iron-fist approach that, yes, was very controversial, but at the same time, the figures do seem to show a decrease in the rate of homicides.
0: Bukele took the power with the promise to eradicate crime, and it would be unfair if I did not recognize that homicides have decreased. As a Salvadorian, I feel happy about this. But as a journalist, I ask myself, how did this happen? Mm. The territorial control plan has bukele, has colored it. It is a miracle. Journalistic investigation in the digital newspaper El Faro have evidence that the government has a truce with the gangs. And this top court of justice has denied that extradition to the United States without explanation of two leaders of the Mara Salvatrucha gangs. And I must tell you that homicides are down, but in force, disappearance have doubled in this year.
1: Okay. And so how do you see this going forward? Would you say that there's any... Uh, do you have any expectation of the ruling being reversed or do you think Bukele will succeed in being a candidate in the 2024 election?
0: Um, I'm totally sure that Bukele will be a candidate again. And I'm totally sure of that.
1: Okay. Okay, thank you very much, Luisa, for being with us here today. And we'll keep an eye on what goes on on El Salvador in the coming weeks and months.
0: Thanks, Lucas, for having me.
2: So, for the second part of the podcast, we're going to talk about some recent news concerning Venezuela. Here to discuss this topic with me is our very own editor-in-chief, Sonia. Hello, Sonia. It's nice to be interviewing you for a change.
3: Hello, Izzy. Yep, I'm happy to be on the other side of the conversation for this episode.
2: So on Friday 3rd of September, the Maduro administration and the opposition met in Mexico to undergo talks that aim to resolve the crisis as marked Nicolás Maduro's eight-year rule. The talks follow the signing of a Memorandum of Understanding Between the Two Parties, which was signed on Friday, August 14th in Mexico City, to reach a series of agreements leading to the holding of elections and the lifting of economic sanctions against the country, amongst other points. However, according to a representative from Maduro's delegation, these talks resulted in a partial agreement, uh, which is what we heard at the beginning of this podcast. So let's find out more about what this actually means. So first of all, Sonia, can you let us know how these talks came about and what they entailed?
3: Yeah, of course. So the first thing that needs to be mentioned when we're discussing these talks is that they do feel a little bit like Groundhog Day. Lots of talks have happened between Nicolás Maduro's administration and the opposition in the past. The most recent talks they were discussing were actually broken by Norway, who also previously broken talks in 2019, Um, which ultimately came to nothing. In 2016, the Vatican actually supported similar talks that also failed. So it does feel a little bit um, repetitive at this point. So actually, when it comes to these talks, the first round of negotiations happened in August, um, as you mentioned in your introduction, following the signing of the Memorandum of Agreement. And those talks ended. And now between the 3rd and the 6th of September, the two sides of the political scene in Venezuela have returned to Mexico City to continue these talks. Although I did say that there is a repetitive nature, it is worth mentioning that these talks are a little bit different because unlike all of the previous talks in past years, these talks that are now being hosted in Mexico actually have the formal backing of the Netherlands, Russia, Bolivia, and Turkey, as well as Norway, that also participated in the round in August. So this sort of international backing and push is definitely something that sets these talks apart, um, and offers a bit of hope, I think, for the talks that we're discussing now. In terms of what what is actually what these who these talks are actually between, uh, as we've said, they're between Nicolas Maduro's administration and the opposition, according to um, Reuters. The opposition delegation will include former mayor and lawyer Gerardo Blide, um, the ambassador to Colombia appointed by the 2015 parliament, Tomás Guainipa, and the ambassador of the Guaido government in the US. On the other side, Maduro's administration's negotiation group will be led by Jorge Rodríguez, who is the president of the National Assembly and was elected in December, and Hector Rodríguez, governor of the state of Miranda and a close confidant of the president. Interesting. So
2: it sounds like we're getting some serious déjà vu with these talks. But as you mentioned, maybe um, there's some scope for um, to hope that things will, will change um, in this particular round. So could you give me a bit more context um, to the talks and maybe the, the role of the talks themselves, where they fit in? And, it, and also what is going on in Venezuela at the moment for those who maybe um, don't
3: know? Um, yeah, of course. So I think when we're talking about the context in which these talks are taking place, it's really important to mention the state of the opposition. Um, As many may remember, the strategy of the opposition in 2019 was to declare Guaido as interim president, as the opposition basically claimed that the 2018 election, which which of course Maduro won, was fraudulent, which it probably was. Um, And so they kind of declared Guaido as interim president. A lot of um, the international community, including the European Union and um, the USA, sort of gave their support to him as president. And their sort of strategy seemed to be to force regime change through this method, like through this method of establishing this interim government, which had international backing. However, this just basically failed. It didn't work. Um, And actually, the opposition in Guaido's position has... Significantly weakened since then. I think the Venezuelans are largely disappointed in the opposition that they actually haven't been able to bring this political transition into reality, as of course Maduro is still in power. The opposition has made a series of mistakes in the past. Um, I listened to a podcast by America's Quarterly, um, and their interview, we actually argued that the opposition hasn't focused on grassroots linkages with the population and especially the fact that their internal capacity is quite weak because they're very fragmented. So there isn't even a consensus in the opposition on how to deal with their situation as the opposition in Venezuela. On the other hand, Maduro's position is actually becoming increasingly strong. He shored up support from both Russia and China. And so now it actually seems that Maduro has the upper hand in these negotiations. And also it's important to mention that Even the regional consensus against Maduro as a leader is breaking down. The government in Lima, Pedro Castillo's new government, who we've also discussed on the podcast, actually dropped out of something called the Lima Group, which is a group of nations that had united to put pressure on the dictatorship in Caracas um, and to bring around political change in Venezuela. So the fact that the Peruvian government has dropped out of this group, it shows that perhaps the desire of the international community to bring about regime change in Venezuela is waning, so, yeah, as the opposition appears very weak, Maduro appears quite strong. Um, and then when it comes to the situation of Venezuela at the moment, it's always a very sort of sad case to talk about. You know, we all know about the exodus of Venezuelans over the past few years, um, especially to Colombia and to countries all around the world. Um, more recently, the country has um, actually increased efforts to dollarize the economy which has led to more inequality and we have also seen crack, a lot of cracks in um, the state's capacity, an increase in violence and it, of course it's important to mention that the government just basically cannot deal with the COVID-19 crisis and provide any public goods or maintain control over what is going on um, inside its borders.
2: Thanks for that Sonia and I think you know for many it will be surprising that to hear that the opposition are so fragmented and that after all this time and everything that's happened Maduro still has um, a significant upper hand. So I just want to continue by asking you um, what both sides actually want and what they what you think that their end goal was when they entered these negotiations in Mexico.
3: Yeah, no, that's a, a good question. And of course, you can't understand negotiations without understanding what both of the sides want. So when, they talk, when this round of talks started in August, what Maduro and his administration basically want is the easing of international economic sanctions imposed by the West, again, mainly Europe and the US. Um, there's a lot of sanctions on Venezuelan officials and institutions for acting undemocratically. And he basically wants these to be eased. Well, I actually read that Joe Biden said that if these negotiations go well, he will consider using restrictions. So that's interesting. We'll see how that goes. Maduro is actually also especially keen to recover 31 tonnes of Venezuelan gold, which are being held in the UK right now because um, the government in London recognised opposition leader Juan Gaudo as interim president in 2019. So he would he's very keen to get that gold back. And on the other hand, the opposition wants um, Maduro to release dozens of individuals they consider to be political prisoners. Um, And especially they want to make sure that they will be able to run in November's regional elections. The the regional elections in November are actually quite interesting because although they are regional elections, so they're not going to create any groundbreaking change. They're just going to vote on um, government, governors and mayors. But it is sort of an opportunity for the opposition to take part because in the previous elections they actually didn't take part because they claimed it was fraudulent anyway. Maybe they can foster more support on the ground and actually act collectively. We just mentioned all of their or problems they had in the opposition, so maybe this is a chance to sort of solve some of those. So they really wanna make sure that they can participate in a sort of decent manner in these November elections that'll be held, held later this year. So that's definitely on the negotiation table for them. And then finally, I think the opposition is also very keen to make sure that Venezuela becomes more open to humanitarian aid. Of course, the state of the country is not great. um, And especially they want COVID vaccinations to be allowed to um, enter the country. So, yeah, that's what both sides kind of want out of these talks.
2: Interesting. And, And the final question I have for you is, What have the outcomes of these talks been so far? Has there been any significant progress made? Um, And and what do you you think about this?
3: Yeah, so these round of talks um, that we're discussing now finished on the 6th of September, so just a few days ago. So actually, it hasn't been entirely clear what has come from them yet. Um, Maduro took to Twitter to call the uh, the talks um, a success for Venezuelans. What he means by that is up to people's own interpretation, I guess. But as you said in your introduction, the Venezuelan government and opposition representatives said that they reached a partial agreement during talks in Mexico City. They released a joint statement following the negotiations, and they said that there were some areas of agreement related to social measures, particularly on those affected by the pandemic, and also issues related to a territorial dispute concerning a neighbouring country, Guyana. Um, And they said that they agreed to, and I quote, establish mechanisms for the restoration and achievement of resources to meet the social needs of the population, with special emphasis on the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, the statement didn't include anything specific about what was going to be done. And it did kind of, you could kind of interpret it as indicating that the country would be relying on help from the international community and multilateral organisations. But yeah, not that many, not many details and so we'll see if this is going to change the lives of Venezuelans or not um, and change the sort of political balance in Venezuela. Um, Aside from that there have been reports by some news outlets and some journalists that people who were sort of quite involved in the talks said that there might be the freeing of opposition leader Freddy Guevara And they also apparently announced the participation of the opposition in the regional election scheduled for november although none of this is actually officially confirmed yet so yeah that's all i can say about the outcome of the talks they will be returning to talks later in in september for the third round um in which i think they're planning to focus on um the judiciary but again we'll have to see then how that goes
2: interesting so I suppose we can say that maybe some some progress is being made or there's scope for for more progress to be made in the future so I think that's all we have time for today but thank you very much Sonia for all your research and your insight and look forward to speaking to you soon yeah of course I'll be back on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) and as always thanks to our listeners for tuning in bye bye